0: all right. Good morning. Good morning. Am I sounding all right on this? All right, let me do this here. So, I've, uh, I have got about 11.30 on Saturday night from 60-plus um, hours of travel with my family returning from South Africa. Thank you, Anthony Galassi, who met me at the airport and picked us up. It was awesome. Um, but... My takeaway was you may not want to fly Qatar Air, because they can't seem to find a direct line to anything, and uh, wild. We were uh, on, we figured out over 60 hours, we left Thursday morning about 11 o'clock in the morning from South Africa, and we returned Saturday 11.30 at night, and we visited four continents on the way. So, I don't usually get jet lag that bad, but I did Here's the cool thing. It, it allowed me to wake up this morning at 3:30 and finish preparing this lesson. So, <laughs> and this lesson is about God always has a plan. So it's good. Um, anyway, let me let me just pray for us, and then uh, we'll get underway. God, you do have a plan, and it's an important one. It's the Almighty one. It is the reason we are here, Lord, and we thank you that we can come together to explore your word today, and we ask that your spirit be with us so that we can understand it clearly. Let nothing that's said here or at the tables, Lord, be um, apart from your will and and apart from what you would want us to take away. Bless us with your presence, Jesus. Send your spirit to dwell among us and help us walk in your light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, I was in in South Africa last week uh, visiting one of my favorite places, in the in the world, really, it's it's called Kruger National Park, and my wife had, had arranged for me to go on this trip because I used to go as a kid, and I love this place. And um, it's this it's a reserve. It's larger than the United Kingdom, and it's just full of amazing displays of God's creativity and power and ingenuity. I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, so while we were there, my wife uh, Amy and I and and my daughter Sophie we had an opportunity to go on a <coughs> guided hike. In Kruger Park, they usually say to get out of your car for good reason, unless you want to become a meal for a lion. But they will do these guided hikes. And this was our guide. And this was the comforting piece of equipment he brought with him. Um, and we went on this hike. And it was actually really cool. We saw some cool things. Um, but one of the things we saw along the way was this remarkable thing. I know, maybe you're expecting me to kind of pull out pictures of the big five or whatever, lions, elephants, rhinos. But we came across this. This is a, uh, what's called a pan. It's, it's, it's just a pond of water that appears out of nowhere in this really dark, uh, kind of barren area. areas. And you see, the, I saw these things all over the place. And there's, there's no water anywhere around. Um, it's very hot and dry there, even the now in the rainy season. It was 104 degrees when we were there. Okay, And it just it, it defies the reason that you'd find ponds with like, no source of water. I was wondering, is there a spring or something? And I didn't know what, where these things came from. Um, so the guide kind of filled us in on this. And it turns out elephants will come along and they will um, roll in the, in, in the dust, in the dirt, to kind of r- relieve themselves of parasites and things like that. And they'll dig a little bit. And in so doing, they create a kind of a shallow indentation. Okay. Then along comes some rain, and you'll get kind of a mud puddle. Then uh, along come animals that use the mud, because it's actually a very good, I guess, balm for dealing with parasites and flies, um, will come along and, and, and wallow in the mud for small animals like warthogs. Okay? And a warthog will go into the mud and, and roll away, in, and when, he le- when that animal leaves, take around 7 kilograms of mud with him. few warthogs do this, and the hole begins to grow. After a while, you get some more rain, and the hole's big enough to service a water buffalo. And a water buffalo will go in there and roll in the mud and walk out, and he'll take about 30 kilograms of mud. And and slowly, the hole begins to grow. And then after a while, elephants can come in and use the same hole. So before long, you've got a big, fairly sizable pond of water that collects out of nowhere. Even cooler, as we walk by one of these, I look inside and I see a turtle swimming around, and there's evidence of fish, there's bubbles, and I'm thinking, how on earth did these get here? Okay, well, as, as it would turn out, storks will, will fly a direct route from one water hole to another. They're not Qatar Air. They know how to actually get directly from one air. And they, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll do so. So they'll, it's the fastest route possible uh, you know, for the, for the bird to take. And the bird will take with fish eggs, frog eggs, turtle eggs, because they're suspended in a jelly substance. They attach to the feathers, they attach to the legs, and they carry and they deliver eggs into these ponds, and these ponds then become populated with fish. Before you know it, you have this life-giving and full-of-life pond where they are living before. And animals are able to survive in some of the most Difficult conditions, because God had a way. Now, why am I sharing this with you? How is this relevant to the study of Ezra? I well, want—it's totally relevant because it reveals the fundamental point I think of this entire book, and really of the old and the entire old and the New Testaments. That God has a plan, and all things, even even in the most unlikely of circumstances, will proceed according to it, and He involves His creation in it. In other words barren and, and waterless land, rather than supernaturally creating a lake, God prompts an elephant to roll in the dirt. And from this simple act and the simple acts of other creations, one after another, he, really, he performs this miracle. Um, so, I submit that it's not that far afield from what the Israelites were facing when they were in their similar situation in exile. They were stuck in this spiritually barren land there were scattered people in a place completely devoid of hope with no clear plan of restoration of their nation. And so as we get into this book, okay, we're about to embark on one of the greatest examples we have of the almighty power and authority and grace of our God, and we need to, to, to really rejoice in that. Uh, but we need to ask ourselves this one question, is there some part of my life in which I have lost sight of the fact that God has a plan. Is there some part of your life where you've lost sight that God has a plan, where it seems like, man, it's, it's just going off the rails? You may not know what the plan is. Indeed, you probably don't. But if you lost sight or faith due to some area in your life which seems like a spiritual desert, that God's sin, I mean, that God is in control and working according to his good and perfect will. Um, And you might need a reminder of his power at this point and the unfailing nature of his plan. And hopefully today we'll get that. So go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying... And we'll get to what he said in a minute. But we see right out of the gate, we see that this passage is not really about the diligence and faithfulness of a pagan in following God's guidance. See, that presupposes that Cyrus had a choice, and he didn't. This passage isn't about him; it's about God. Okay, but first a little background, just so we can kind of put this in context. Cyrus, the founder, obviously of the Persian Empire. And he reigned over the Persians from 559 to 530 B.C., somewhere around there. He captured Babylon in October of 539, and he began fully reigning over Babylon in, in March of 538. Okay, so Cyrus here is really like the elephant in the park that I talked about before. He's the most powerful created being, if you think about it. But by the mission of his own mouth, he's no more than a cog in God's machine or a component of God's plan. He exists to fulfill a prophecy and a promise. And as the text reveals, the prophet Jeremiah, who, by the way, whose prophetic ministry took place decades before, from about 626 B.C. to 586 B.C., prophets of Cyrus' rise. Specifically, in Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, and 29, uh, 10, God reveals the prophecy of the 70-year Babylonian captivity of the Israelite nation. He says this, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will will punish the king of Babylon and the nation and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. And again in Jeremiah 29.10, he says, For thus thus says the Lord, When the 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So how does this work? How does the math work out here? Well, the first deportation began in 605, the third year of Jehoiakim, according to Daniel 1.1. In 538, with Cyrus' decree, 67 years later, the initiation of the people's return takes place. And by 536, 537, 69, 70 years, the work on the temple begins. So roughly 70 years, just as God predicts, he fulfills his plans. God's plan revealed, which is, of course, revealed across all 66 of the books of the Bible. This is just one part of it. It's passing through another gate. And it's remarkable to, to observe. So what does Cyrus say? Uh, he says, thus says uh, king of per- uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, had given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So this is the beginning of Cyrus' famous decree. And again, it's a fulfillment of prophecy and God's plan. Isaiah, whose prophecy began more than 200 years earlier, prophesied for the Lord specifically, specifically about Cyrus. And he says, it is I who says of Cyrus, this is um, Isaiah forty four twenty it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. And again, in, uh, in Isaiah 45, 1, says, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. So you see, Cyrus didn't have a choice here. And even the most powerful man on earth, this is a reminder that even the most powerful man on earth is subject to the will of God, at the whim of God. That's a pretty important thing to keep in mind these days, I think. Because we're in some pretty heady days, and we've got pretty uncertain leadership in parts of our world. It's easy to lose sight. But God's, God's in control, so we really have nothing to fear, and that, that's amazing. And this raises a separate question, which I'll just touch on briefly, of whether Cyrus became a believer. Uh, his edict seems to certainly indicate this, the way he talks about God, but it's, it's, it seems unlikely. Cyrus implemented and followed this consistent policy of honoring the religions and customs of the different people that became subject to the Persian Empire. It was different than Nebuchadnezzar, different than anybody before, um, uh, so, I would say, you know, he showed the same, in fact, uh, generosity to the Babylonians as he showed to the Jews. Um, so, maybe, if anything, he's a universalist. Maybe he has a coexist sticker on his chariot or something. But but, but, <laughs> but here's the thing. He knew the power and he knew the status of the God of Israel. Um, he uses this term, God of heaven. And, and actually, this term is used more in the book of Ezra than any other book. Uh, but here, specifically, Cyrus uses this term, as, and it points to God's sovereignty. Because under no religious system at the time was there a being more powerful than the one who existed in and who made heaven. And he he, he understands this. Cyril, uh, also, Cyrus's uh, acknowledgment that it was God who gave him the, uh, his empire, um, this points to his knowledge of God's authority. And his declaration uh, That God has appointed him to build God's house in Jerusalem. Again, this is evidence that Cyrus, again, the most powerful man alive at the time, is every bit as subject to the will of God as even the most powerless outcast. So now, to his decree. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in. Okay, so at this point, we've seen that God is sovereign, and we've seen his plan is unfailing, and even in the most powerful men, in any position, um, are only in positions of power according to his will. So it would seem that Cyrus, charged with rebuilding the temple, would order his subjects to do this, right? I have been charged with building a temple, go build the temple. But it's interesting here, the word up here you see, um, let him go up to Jerusalem, that word let, it's hiach in the Hebrew, it's something that's in in the language is called an imperfect jussive tense, okay, what does that mean? What it means is that this is volitional. Okay, it's, it's, it's not an imperative. It's, it's saying, let him choose. It indicates that Cyrus, or God really, is giving the Israelites here about rebuilding the temple. And the whole point of this book really, again, has little to do with the power of Cyrus and the Persians and everything to do with God's plan to have his people return on their own choice to rebuild that temple. So the Israelites had a choice, but it wasn't an easy one. Uh, much like missionaries going into difficult foreign lands throughout history and even today, the turn to Jerusalem had to involve insecurity and hardship and suffering. And just like missionaries throughout history since, it also involved support from those who weren't going. So the plan involved men willing to go to proclaim the glory of God to rebuild the temple and men willing to sacrifice their material goods to pay for the trip. This is the missionary model of history that has served God's people before and since. And you had to expect that I was going to work missions in here. (laughs) But it is there. But more importantly, God's plan of redemption had depended on the faith and decisions and actions of his people. God, God allowed that, which is amazing. He doesn't need this will. He doesn't need to give them a choice in the matter. In his amazing grace, he allows them to play a fundamental role in his plan of redemption, and he does the same for every man in this room. This is the miracle of being a child of God. Not that just, not, yes, you're saved. Yes, you will have eternity with God. But you have a chance to be part of his plan, the unveiling of his plan for redemption. So, he does the same for us. Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests of the Levites, e- even everyone whose spirit God has stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Uh, I didn't read that correctly. Uh, anyway, all of those uh, about them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. <clears throat> Here we see that though though not commanded to respond, okay, a mandate by this powerful man, Cyrus, uh, the people still are stirred, heir is the word, meaning they're, they're agitated or excited or roused by the Holy Spirit. So God doesn't command it. We, these aren't autonom, un, you know, autonomous people, or, or, or I'm sorry, puppets on a string, the Israelites, stir up through them, through the movement of his Holy Spirit, to go and, and, and this demonstrates that these are his people, chosen by him to carry forth his plan. Um, and it's, it's always been about God's people carrying out God's plan according to God's will. In fact, reminiscent in these passages, you'll see, is the Exodus. He says there are those about them who are, okay, they're not likely Jews, encourage them with articles of silver and gold. We see the same thing in Exodus when God has the Egyptians support the miraculous delivery of the Israelite nation from bondage through their gifts of silver and gold and clothing. Um, that's, you'll see that in 22 and 11.2 and 12.35. The building, or in this case, the rebuilding of the house of the Lord, also is a fundamental component of the Exodus. Um, one of the largest sections of that book, chapters 25 through 40, is dedicated to the construction of the tabernacle and the establishment of worship. So we may tend to pass over these times in our Bible study. Um, we shouldn't, because these things matter to God, and it should matter to us. In fact, are we building a building out here, or are we building a tabernacle? It depends not just on how we use it, but on the spirit within us, striving to glorify God through its creation. This is an act of worship. But more to the point, we see in all of this the working out of God's plan over time and seemingly in Repetition. Again, Exodus, now the return from exile. One of my professors I had at at DTS said this. He said, um, God does repeat. He does the same thing over again, but he's way too creative to ever do it. quite. Uh, Let's see. There we go. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Bazar, the prince of Judah. So finally, we see Cyrus now getting into the game, and this is significant, but not but not necessarily, or at least only because of the value of these goods that were plundered by Nebuchadnezzar. See, it was a common practice at the time for kings when they captured a nation or a people. Uh, that they would plunder the nation's gods or gods, their their idols, um, and and their cultic objects, and this this served to symbolize the victory of the king's gods over the gods of the people he plundered. Okay, my gods can beat up your god. Um, Cyrus's decision to return these his confession of the power and authority of the God of Israel over all other gods, including his own. As this fellow Sheshbazar, you may be wondering who's that. Um, A lot of ink has been spilled on that question of whose identity. One theory is that Sheshbazar was uh, named for Zerubbabel, who we'll see later in the book, the grandson of Jehoiakim, and he assists in the laying of the foundation, we'll see in chapter 3. The second is that he was a Jew appointed by the governor of Cyrus over Judah, but who died shortly after arriving into Jerusalem and then was replaced by Zerubbabel. A third view is that Persian official who went to oversee the rebuilding project. So which view, if any, is right? I don't know. I don't know. But this is the only time we really hear about him. Um, Okay. So now, and we're going to wrap up with this. Um, we come now to, to, to the verse. What was collected? And now, now this was the number. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of the gold and silver numbered 4,500. Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And here we see the beginning of the great story of God's plan that we're going to be exploring. So finally, as we close out the chapter um, and looking at this accounting, uh, I'm I'm suspecting that there's not a few type A folks out there uh, who have counted the number in 1, 9 through 10 to see if it matches the number in 11 and said, aha, it does not. How does that work? What's what's the explanation for that? Um, Was Ezra bad at math? Anybody, Anybody buy that one? I'm glad because Ezra was inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's a really good way to go. Um, no, uh, it, it could have been a redaction or two variant traditions of this Ezra that have been kind of merged here and brought together by some scribe, and um, probably not. Most likely, what we have here um, is, an account- is an accounting in verses nine through ten of the bigger and more valuable objects. And the one in 11 is a total number, so there's probably some smaller, less, you know, less important. So, at least, hey, that's, that's what uh, sounds good to me, works for me. <laughs> All right, these details are important, but, but what's the larger picture here? What's the one big takeaway I hope that you'll uh, walk out of here with us? Well, it's this, that no matter how things look around us and no matter what circumstances we may be facing, no matter who's in power, no matter who's out of power, no matter what, God has a plan And this very moment is part of it. We may be wondering, what about God's plan involves shooting down planes or giving some malicious dictator access to powerful weaponry? Or we may wonder, what about God gives hordes of people, you know, God's plan involves hordes of people suffering at borders because of shameless abuse by the leaders of their very countries? Or what about it involves a cancer diagnosis, a wayward child, victims of senseless violence, um, I'm pretty sure that the many Israelites in the post exilic period were asking similar questions. What has happened? Um, and wondering if their plans of their God had finally been thwarted. And many may have lacked the longer view that only faith affords the faith that God is, has always been, and will always be sovereign, and his plan will never fail. The faith that no matter what things look like from our perspective, Jesus is on the throne, and his plan of the restoration of all things is unfolding even as we speak. You know that he has a plan, and today I hope that you can take comfort in that and praise him for it, and step out in courage because of it. So let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that you have a plan. Thank you, Lord, that all the days ordained for our lives have been written in your book already. Thank you that for every man in this room, Lord, you've given us the opportunity to be part of your plan. And you've already arranged all things, Lord Jesus, so that you will return and make all things right. We take comfort to that. We praise you for that. We ask that you give us a spirit, Lord, to speak boldly about who you are and what your plan is all the world may know and hasten your return. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. And there's just some discussion questions for you All right, All right.